Thank you, Lyle. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. My name is Reed Kappel. I serve on the pastoral staff here at the Leewood campus. And it's good to be with you all to open God's Word together. Um, it's um, it's kind of crazy to think that six months have passed now since our world was rocked by the news of a very precious publication that went belly up. And, and I'm very proud of you all for remaining strong in these last six months, knowing that our beloved Sky Mall magazine went bankrupt. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm very, I'm, I don't know what to make of this. It's confusing. I, I, the, the feelings are still raw for me, uh, as, as I'm sure it is for you. But where else are we going to get blankets that you can wear in public and not be shamed? Where, where else are we going to get Sasquatch stones that we place in our garden? I don't know. I don't know. Can you think of a more absurd publication and piece of literature than Sky Mall Magazine? And some of you like, you're like, oh, I, I subscribe to that. I, yeah, yeah. If you, can, you can admit it. If you've purchased something from Sky, has anybody purchased anything from Sky Mall Magazine? Here's what, you can confess sin and this, this is a safe place. You can admit that. <laughs> It is. It's just an absurd publication. And if you've been on a, on a flight before, you, you're familiar with this weird magazine that exists to sell just the most unnecessary items. And what's interesting about SkyMall is that if you've been on a plane while the flight attendant is giving vital information about how to stay alive when crashing in the middle of the Atlantic, most people are like, this, I've got all that stuff. I'm more interested in this glow-in-the-dark toilet seat. Like, what is it? about SkyMall that is more riveting than information about how to stay alive. And it's, it's, not, it's not because the content of SkyMall is that appealing. It's just that if we've flown a lot, we've heard the information about what to do in an emergency landing. There's the exits and this is the flotation device, blah, blah, blah. I got that. We're more interested in just reading about this, these ridiculous items. And like I said, it's not because the content of SkyMall is intriguing. It's just that we think we know this information of how to stay alive. We've tuned it out. It's become very familiar to us. And what's interesting, though, is that do you really think that you know this information so well that in the event of an emergency, you know what to do? And I can speak from experience that this is not true. Six months ago, I was on a flight with Pastor Joey Wilson and Pastor Chris Fernhout from our Olathe campus, and we were flying back from Charlotte or uh, New York to Charlotte for a connecting flight. And our flight starts to drop an altitude very quickly. And we're a little bit startled. And the oxygen masks deploy, like the, as in movies. And you're like, oh, this is a real life thing now. And I don't know what to do. And I remember you're supposed to help people in general. That's just a good rule for life. But you're supposed to help people with their mask. And I go to help Chris put his on. He's like, what are you doing? You got to put yours on first. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I've got to put mine on, then yours. And, and I'm forgetting. I'm just a good Christian. I'm looking out for other people, you know. But I just completely forgot. In that moment, I had tuned out all the rules and instructions that I thought was very familiar to me, but it had slowly grown foreign. I didn't know what to do in this moment because I assumed I knew the knowledge, but I had just tuned it out. And, and I think this same phenomenon is true when it comes to our text for this morning. Whether you've grown up in the church or not, whether you're a Christian or not, You've probably heard this passage read before. You've heard it probably preached on in church. You've probably heard it read at weddings. Some of you have portions of it stitched on pillows in your house. But 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as it's called, is, is we're very familiar with. But there's possibly the chance that we have got, grown so familiar with it that we've kind of missed its purpose. 
And we, we don't see why Paul has placed this discourse of love in this letter in the context of spiritual gifts. And what I would like for us to do this morning is to see that this chapter on love, as beautiful and as powerful as it is, perhaps has a meaning that we have missed as it relates to our spiritual gifts. It's hard for us to see past the stereotype of it being read at weddings. As one commentator put it, this chapter is not a charming, self-contained hymn of love that Paul drew from his files to serve as a pleasant diversion or to give people something to read at weddings. This is something that we need to see that is tied very closely to the spiritual gifts. And so what I'd like for us to do, I know we just heard it read, but I would like to read this passage again with fresh ears, with fresh eyes, and I'd like to back up a bit and read at the end of chapter 12 so that we can see why Paul has placed this letter here. It is not, as some people argue, it wasn't placed in later. It wasn't like Paul wrote the letters like, this is a really mean letter. I should put this letter of love in there, you know, to make it better. It's like putting a smiley face at the end of a text so you don't think people think you're mean or whatever. But he, he has very good intention for this chapter being in this letter. So if we would, I'd like for us to hear these words again, starting in chapter 12 and verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church, and, and here Paul goes on to, to list all these various gifts, and then we skip down, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As, as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been made, full, I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let us pray one more time as we continue in God's word. Father, we ask that, that what we know not, you would teach us. That what we see not, you would reveal to us. And what we are not, you would make us in accordance with the likeness of your Son, through the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what I'd like for us to do, just to kind of set the context, if you haven't been with us on Sunday mornings, we've been journeying through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And, and the last couple weeks, we, we were in a mini-series within this letter on the spiritual gifts. And what we're, where we've been thus far, just to kind of sum up, we've looked at this idea that the gifts that have been given to the church through the Holy Spirit are given not for our individual benefit, but for the good of others, for the building up of the church, for the common good of all people. 
Last week, we looked at this idea that the gifts are given for us to belong to one another and to need one another. And so, so to sum up really where we've been thus far as we talk about the spiritual gifts, the gifts are given to build up the church and to belong to one another. Knowing that, now we enter into chapter 13 where Paul shows us the framework, the foundation behind all of these gifts, and it is love. And what we're going to see, we're just going to look at three things very simply. We're going to look at the priority of love, we're going to look at the picture of love, and then the permanence of love. The priority of love, the picture of love, and the permanence of love. The first is the priority of love. We're going to look at the first three verses here. And rather than Paul just saying, love is important, love is paramount, it is the greatest of all virtues, while he does believe that and he ends this way, he actually shows us the priority of love by showing what life looks like without love, life devoid of love. And what Paul says in displaying the priority of love, he says, without love, especially as it pertains to the spiritual gifts, without love, we will find ourselves being, uh, resulting in three things, that we will find ourselves contributing nothing, we will find ourselves actually becoming nothing, and gaining nothing. As Paul is showing the priority of love, he shows us that without love at the core, at the framework of our gifts, we will find ourselves contributing nothing, becoming nothing, and gaining nothing. Now it's interesting that Paul begins chapter 13 by talking about the gift of tongues. Now this gift was the gift that the Corinthians kind of placed above all other gifts. It was the most important. And they were pursuing it because they thought if you had the gift of tongues, you were a more super spiritual, mature Christian. And Paul very pointedly begins by saying, if I have the gift of tongues but have not love, I am like a a gong and a clanging cymbal. If you look at verse one, Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's point here is to show that as great and as powerful as our spiritual gifts may be, if they have not love at its root, they will not have much good in its fruit. It's kind of Dr. Susie, but it'll work, okay? But the idea is that if love is not the guiding principle, the framework through which we exercise and embrace and understand our gifts, we will find ourselves contributing nothing. Another way of saying it is that there is an emptiness to our efforts if love is not the guiding principle behind our spiritual gifts. Now, for some of us, we're like, yeah, yeah, we, 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 got, we got that. We know love is really important. The Beatles taught us that in the 70s. We've got that. But we have to see that we cannot just gloss over this chapter. This is why Paul is writing this, because the Corinthians were losing sight of the purpose of the gifts and the context through which they should be embraced and exercised. Now, most of us would agree, I think love is a good thing. I think we can, you know, we don't have to take votes on that. Uh, but we, we have a hard time, I think, seeing the necessity of love, especially in a culture that is very results-based, results-driven. We may see that love is helpful, and it's a supplement to other skill sets and abilities and talents, but to see it as, as, as an undergirding kind of foundational principle to all of life Well, we're maybe less quick to embrace that because to truly love can result in inconvenience, in disadvantages to us. It can result in us being taken fully advantage of. To really sum it up, love means that it will cost us something. And so we we kind of push it away. We're like, yeah, it's important, but for it to be a foundation to all that we do, I'm, I'm less quick to embrace that mindset. 
But in either case, regardless of how we view love, we have to see that regardless of the costs that come our way as a result of our love towards others, what we have to see is that love is never pointless, that we will never find us wasting our time because of love. And Paul says this later on in the end of chapter 13, love is, is the one that endures. But the flip side is also true, that, that if, if, if we embrace love, we will find that, that our work will not be pointless. But if love is devoid of our gifts, and really of all things in life, if we do not have love, we will find ourselves living a life that is very empty. And we may find ourselves slipping into a path where we use our gifts to promote ourselves as opposed to building up others. And this is really what resonates with my heart. As, as I was preparing for this, I was having to honestly assess in my own heart and ask myself, what is it that compels me to take this stage to open God's word with you all? And if I'm really honest, a lot of what my motivation is to study hard, to prep well, to come here and to be faithful to God's word, a lot of my motivation is to advance the kingdom of Reed is one more opportunity for me to be known. The kingdom of Reed is not very powerful, so don't, don't think of joining it, you know. We have a very weak military, and it's just me and a bunch of girls, basically. But, but, but in all seriousness, that, that is a motivation behind a lot of what I do. I see this as one more opportunity to get recognition, to get attention, to get pats on the back, and to be recognized for gifts that God has given me. And we all should honestly assess in our own hearts, why do I serve? Why do I want to give in this way? What is it that drives me to exercise and embrace the gifts God has given me? Is it to make much of God and to help others fall in love with him? Or is it to promote my own agenda, to advance my own kingdom? You see, when, when our motive is for the love of God and the love of others, we will find ourselves building up the church for the common good of others. But when we're motivated for our own glory, it will actually be a self-defeating endeavor that destroys communities. The priority of love leads us to contributing nothing. But Paul even goes further. He says that if you don't have love, it actually makes you nothing. It's not just that your contributions are empty, but that you yourself can, can be empty. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. A life devoid of love is a life devoid of meaning. It's not just that our gifts are meaningless or that our fruit is meaningless from those gifts, but that we can find ourselves being meaningless, our lives being meaningless. Or it could be said that, that when we don't operate from a, a foundation of love, that we can become something that we were never intended to be, that we become something different, and let me illustrate it this way. If, you, if you're trying to make a cake and you have all the ingredients but you don't have flour, whatever you mix together and put in the oven, it, whatever comes out is not a cake. I don't know what it is. It's not really identifiable. You don't have a cake if you don't have flour in the ingredient. In the same way, if love is not a part of the batter of spiritual gifts, so to speak, we will find ourselves not just contributing nothing, but we will find ourselves being something entirely different than what God intended for us to be. We will find ourselves being nothing. So just as love, if that is devoid of from our spiritual gifts, we can find ourselves contributing nothing and there's an emptiness to our efforts. 
But there's also a reality that there's an emptiness to our existence when love is taken out of the picture. You see, because the currency that God has created in his economy is love. And when that is taken out of the picture, we will find ourselves experiencing personal, existential, spiritual bankruptcy. And, 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 we're, and when we just kind of gloss over, like, yeah, yeah, love's important, it's good to kind of have there as a supplement, but it must be seen as foundational, or we will find ourselves feeling a sense of emptiness. Now, lastly, when, as Paul's trying to show us the priority of love, he doesn't just say you contribute nothing, you, gain, you are nothing, but you also find yourselves gaining nothing. He says it very clearly in verse three. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's almost like Paul is kind of flipping the, the, the rhetorical question that Jesus asked in Matthew 16, where, where Jesus poses the question, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It's almost like Paul is kind of flipping around and, and saying, what does it profit a person who gives up the world and even their own life, yet does so without love? In writing on this very passage, D.A. Carson puts it, puts it this way. He says, in all of this, if there is no love, I gain nothing. In this divine mathematics, five minus one equals zero. This idea, I don't care if you have all these amazing gifts. What Paul is saying here is, look, look I don't care if you have tongues, prophecy, Jedi mind tricks. I don't care what you think you have. If you don't have love, you have nothing. You are zero. Love must be the guiding principle. To illustrate it another way, love is not just an app that we add to our apps of spiritual gifts. Love is the operating system from which all the apps of our spiritual gifts come from. That was a cell phone. That was a pretty hip analogy, don't you think? But the, the idea here is that if you have a phone, if you have a phone that doesn't have an operating system on it, you don't have any functional apps. It's just a really expensive paperweight. You know what I'm saying? But the same way, if you don't have love, you don't have any real fruitful gifts. Love is not just one more app we add to the apps of our spiritual gifts. It is the very operating system. Love must be seen as a priority as we seek to embrace and exercise the gifts God has given us. Secondly, Paul shows us the picture of love. So we see how important it is. It's a priority. But what is this love that Paul is talking about? And he begins to paint this picture for us in verses four through seven. Now, as Paul continues on in his discourse, it's important to know that he's not defining love. It's not, it's not this all-exhaustive definition. He's simply describing it. He is. He's painting a picture for us with these brush strokes of what love looks like. And it's, it's important to note as well that he doesn't use this kind of airy greeting card language. He uses very concrete behavioral words to illustrate that love is not simply an affection, a feeling, an emotion, but it is rooted in action, in behavior. And Paul begins with a word that most of us would probably not put on our list first to describe love. Like I said, most of us, if we were to paint the picture of love from our palette, we probably would not put the word patient on the top of the list. We would not use that word. Because most of us would say, you know, I'm a loving person. I mean, if I were to ask you, you would probably agree. You're a loving person. And, and if that's true, like, oh, well, great. So you're a loving person? Yeah, yeah, I'm a loving person. Oh, so you're a patient person? Uh, no, no, I'm not. No, never, never mind. You know, like, we would not get past the first word that Paul uses. 
I mean, just think, if we, once we run our lives, our days, our morning getting ready for church through this first filter of love, half of us would fail this definition of love, this description of love, that love is patient. Now, it's, the word patient, it's not really the best translation because we, we kind of have this connotation of, oh, being patient is just being able to endure a long grocery store line or something like that. Or I have the ability to drive my vehicle without wrecking it as three girls are screaming in the back, fighting over who's going to be the pet in their imaginary game of veterinarian, <laughs> hypothetically. That's not, that's not patience. I mean, it is patience, but the picture Paul has in mind is something greater. The, the, the better word is long-suffering, but that's not, that's not a really helpful word. No one uses that, like, how are you growing in long-suffering today? No one says that, uh, I don't think. But the idea is that long-suffering, patience, the idea Paul has here is the ability to endure suffering that is brought upon us by other people in such a way that we don't repay or retaliate with retribution and anger. It's not just the ability to endure. It's not even just saying, I see what you're doing to me, and oh, I'm just waiting until my chance to get back at you. It's that, no, I am willing to suffer knowing that it will bring great cost to me to forgive you and move forward in forgiveness. I think it's very interesting that the first word Paul uses to paint the picture of love is a word of cost and pain. Just think about it. The first word that he uses to paint this picture of love is a word of cost and pain. Love is pain, and it will cost you. And I think this doesn't really jive well with our mindset of what love is because we tend to equate, I think what we've done in our culture in our day is that we have inappropriately or incorrectly equated love with happiness. And so what what has resulted is that love is only that which produces happiness in my life. Anything that keeps me from being happy is not loving, And so we push away things that God would say are actually signs and acts of love because we push them away because they're not producing happiness within us. And I think we've blurred the lines between love and happiness because we tend to look through life through self-serving lenses. I know I do. And I don't think, I mean, if we were to paint the picture of love, if, if happiness truly was equated with love, I can think of a much more effective and productive list to use to describe love than what Paul is describing. I mean, would any of us put patience on the top of the list if we thought love was equal to happiness? I can think of a much easier way to describe love if happiness was the same as love, but it's not. Love oftentimes does not result in happiness. It results in cost and pain. Anybody who's been in love knows that. It doesn't mean that love does not produce happiness. It produces far more than that. When we settle for happiness, we're settling for something way less than the picture that God has for us. And if we were to paint this picture of love with our own palette of happiness, I think Paul's letter would actually look like this. If Paul were to use our palette of happiness, it would read, love is happiness and free of concern. Love does not suffer or require cost. It is not difficult to attain or express. Love is interested in what I want and only what I want. Love expects a great deal from others in order to meet my needs. Love is about feelings and more importantly, my feelings. Love demands that you change but never even expects that I change. Love is conditional and doesn't require a long-term contract and as such, love always ends. 
When we equate love with happiness, we're missing out on the fullness of the life that God is inviting us into through Christ. As I said, we tend to look at life and love through self-serving lenses. And it has impacted the way in which we think about love. And that's why it's important that we see that love is not just the act of adding positive virtues to our life, but it is the act of deconstructing and pushing away, eliminating harmful characteristics that stand opposed to the idea of love. And Paul is well aware of this. If you notice, I mean, he begins his picture of love by saying love is patient, love is kind, two positive words. But then the rest, almost the rest of his picture is painted with words of negation, of what love is not. Which is very interesting because I think what that says is our primary disposition, our primary posture is to stand against love. Paul has to use all these negative words, say love is not this, it's not this, it's not this. Like, oh, because that's how we tend to operate. And this is exactly where he goes next. Now, we could spend an entire sermon on each of these brushstrokes of describing love, but we're just going to take a few seconds to look at them. So, so as we continue on through 1 Corinthians 13, we see that love does not envy or boast. To put it simply, in love, there is no room for self-promotion. What I mean by this is that when we truly love, we, we don't look at other people and who they are and what they have and assume we must have it. Let me move this other way, sorry. We do not look at what other people have and who they are and assume we must have it. Neither does it mean that we look at who we are and what we have and make sure that other people know it. It is not an act to say, I, I should have what you have. Love is not envious, but neither is it boastful in making sure that you know who I am and what I'm capable of doing. There is no room for this in love. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. When love reigns in our hearts, we are guarded from being consumed with ourselves in pride and thus guarded from looking down on others with contempt. Hugh Binning, an old Puritan author, he wrote a little book called Christian Love, and in it he says this, in describing pride, he says, pride is a self-admirer and despises others, and to please itself, it cares not to displease others. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not allow us to operate from the standpoint of, how can I get this to work out for my benefit? How can I manipulate the situation, the relationship to serve me? Nor does it allow us to pull rank with someone we love in saying that therefore you should serve me. If we're to stalemate, there's no pulling rank in love. Love always operates from the vantage point of what can I do to make much of the other person? To say it another way, love is not a mirror that we use to look at our reflection. Love is a spotlight to shine on the needs and interests of others. It is not a mirror for us to look at ourselves, but a spotlight to look at the needs and interests of others. Love is not irritable or resentful. It's not easily angered, annoyed. It's not embittered or provoked. And this is for sure where I fail the love test in a lot of ways. When I come home from work, one of my favorite scenes, my, my three girls, they routinely come down and greet me. They're like, Dad, you're home, and it's really exciting. They come down, they hug me, they kiss me, they have pictures of me. They're not that flattering, but they're, you know, they're, they're nice pictures. And and in, in this moment, it's a Norman Rockwell kind of moment, and then seconds later, I walk into their room. And they've decided to re-carpet their room with their clothes, you know, and it's just a mess. And moments after this beautiful family moment, 
I'm yelling at them. I'm angry. I'm impatient. Not because I want more for my girls. Like, oh, I want you to be more disciplined and organized. And I want you to have a clean room because it's so lovely. It's like, no, you have inconvenienced me. You have made my home a mess. And I'm angry with you. And within seconds, I have failed almost every single description of love that Paul has set forth. Now, to be clear, I don't think Paul is saying we can never be frustrated. I don't think he's saying that. But I think what he is saying is that we can guard ourselves from allowing ourselves to be so provoked in anger by other people. Karl Barth, he's an old German theologian. Uh, Well, he's not with us anymore, so he's very old. But uh, he says, in writing about his love of neighbors, he says, my neighbor can get dreadfully on my nerves, even in the exercise of what he regards as his particular gifts. Love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, he puts it this way. He says that love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. Other translations say that love does not keep a record of wrongs or a book of evils counted against us. What this means is that there's no room for the line, yeah, but remember when you did this, when we are arguing with someone we love. When we don't keep records of wrongs, what we are saying is that I'm... I don't think it's necessarily possible or even advisable to forget past sins committed against us, but what we are saying is that when we love and don't keep records of wrongs, what we are saying is that I am moving forward in the hope of a new future with you as I forgive you for what you've done to me. To put it another way, when we call out someone, we rebuke someone or correct someone that we love, we are not doing so because it's our chance to get back at them for what they've done to us but it is a way for us to help them avoid future sins for their good. And if that is not our motive for calling people out, we should shut up. I'm a firm believer of that one, that if your motive is not to see this person restored and brought to restoration in your relationship and their relationship with God, then we are not calling out in love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Do we really see this picture of love? Do we really believe that love bears all things even when it costs us greatly? Do we believe that love believes all things even when it is easier to be cynical? A love that hopes all things even when everyone else has lost hope. A love that endures all things even when everything seems to say we should just give up. If I may, just suggest one thing for us to consider this week is to look at this list And and I know for me, the tendency is to look at lists and be like, oh my gosh, I cannot match up to this, so I don't even try. So if you would, just turn to your neighbor and tell them how they are failing at this chapter. No, just kidding, don't do that. Um, But in all seriousness, take a moment this week and just look at this list and just honestly assess your heart and say, Lord, show me where am I failing to emulate and display this love? And if you're really bold, I would invite you to ask someone who loves you and who you trust to speak into this. And not just tell them like where you're failing, but ask them, where do you see me growing in love? Where do you see this actually bearing fruit for the good of others? I think you'll be surprised at what you hear. So this brings us to our last point, the permanence of love. And what we see is that really Paul is making the same point. He's just saying it in a new way, that the love should be seen as a priority because of its permanence, because it will never fade 
The fact that love is permanent and will outlast our gifts is the reason that Paul concludes the chapter by saying love endures. It is the greatest of all of these. Even greater than our spiritual gifts because the gifts fade. And the gifts will fade because one day they will no longer be needed. The purpose of the spiritual gifts are for us to help ourselves and others see God, savor God, and show God's love. That is its purpose. But there will come a day when the revelation of God's fullness, of his glory and love will be seen perfectly and fully. And what that means is that on that day, the spiritual gifts are not needed. We don't need them because we will see the fullness of God fully revealed to us at the return of Christ. To say it another way, the spiritual gifts have an expiration date, so to speak, and that day is coming because one day we will see, as Paul says in verses 8 through 10, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Let me illustrate it this way. If you've, some of you have probably seen the movie trailer for the new Star Wars movie coming out. And it's really exciting, even if you don't like Star Wars, it's really exciting to see. But once the movie comes, the movie trailer's obsolete. You don't need it anymore. Right now, it's, 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 it's creating interest, and we hopefully people will go see the movie and become fans of Star Wars. But once the theatrical feature is here, no one's going back home and watching the trailer again. It's not necessary. The full feature film is here in the same way the spiritual gifts serve as the 30-second trailer to point us to the full feature film of God's revelation of himself and his fullness and glory and love when Christ returns. The gifts will fade. It's not because they are inadequate. It's not because they are weak. It's because they will no longer be needed when Christ returns. Now, clearly, this, this issue of the spiritual gifts is an important issue. It's a divisive issue, unfortunately, and I think it's divisive for so many reasons, but I think it's divisive because we have missed the purpose of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, that these gifts must be seen, understood, embraced, and exercised in love. When we seek to discern our gifts, yes, we should ask the question, where am I needed? What am I good at? But before all of those are asked, we should ask the question, am I motivated by love? Don Carson, I know I've mentioned him before, but, but he says this. I just think he sums this up so well for us. He says, the greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated, is Christian love. Whatever theological or exegetical chasm divides charismatic from non-charismatic, none of us can afford to ignore what is central, characteristic, and irreplaceable in biblical Christianity, and that is love. So as we bring all this to a close, I just want to offer us three questions. The first question is this, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for what you accomplished with your life, or do you want to be known for how you loved? And, and those aren't, don't, don't have to be mutually exclusive, but when people look at your life and they see the things that you accomplished, do they say this person accomplished much out of love or this person accomplished much because their desire was to make much of themselves? What do you want to be known for? Secondly, what is your motive in serving with your gifts? 
Is it your desire to make much of God, to love God and help others love God, or is your desire and love for validation and effectiveness? Validation and effectiveness are not bad, but when they are our end, if they are what we are aiming for, we are missing the picture. And then lastly, and we'll close with this, do you see Jesus in this chapter before you see yourself? The common way I think that this passage has been taught, and it's not a bad thing, is where we say, take the word love, replace it with your name, and see how you match up. And while that's, I think that's a good principle, a good practice, if we place our name first before Jesus' name, that will either lead us down a path of despair by not being good enough, or down a path of self-righteousness thinking that we are good enough, and neither of those are desirable or in line with the gospel. But what we must do is take the word love and replace it first with Jesus and see that it is Jesus who is patient and kind. It is Jesus who is merciful and who does not count a record of wrong against us. It is Jesus who hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things, and bears all things for us. When we see Jesus in this chapter first, it empowers and motivates us and gives us the strength to love in this way. Place Jesus' name first and see his great love towards you before you place your name in this chapter. As the Apostle Peter said, Jesus has set us an example because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our gifts, our work, our very lives are only as good as our love. And our love is as only as good as the love that we've received through Christ Jesus. And it's the love that all of us, if we are honest, it is the love that we are all longing for. Whether we have received it for the 500th time or for the first time, we all long for this love. May this love permeate our hearts, our gifts, our work, and all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love and that you are our standard. Lord, replace in our minds the ways in which we have equated happiness with love, and may we see the picture you have set before us. May we see ourselves, our gifts, our entire being through the lens of love for the good of others and for the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.